Hello everyone, it's the Northern One from Broken Oars Podcast, and as you might occasionally hear in the background, there's currently a building site directly opposite me as I record, so you may occasionally hear the merry sound of jackhammers jacking, drills screaming, and indeed men screaming as large heavy objects fall on them from great heights. So you can probably tell, because it's my dulcet tones welcoming you back rather than Lewin's strident stentorian southern tones, that this will be a Broken Oars podcast with a bit of a difference. It's going to be another Broken Oars University podcast. And the reason why there's been no content, as I believe all of the kids on the street call it nowadays from us recently, is quite simple. Lewin is snowed under with work. He's also doing some professional qualifications and also being a father and a husband and a family man at the same time. So he is incredibly busy. I am juggling whether or not I will continue with the fine and noble art of pushing a boat backwards down a river after spending most of 2022 and indeed all of 2021 pretty much flat on my back with various COVID-related illnesses. However, as we know that you like something to listen to and indeed you like something to shout at the screen at or shout at your device at going, that's rubbish, you should never do that at the finish. I've decided that I'm going to exercise what is left of my brain now that COVID has reduced it by about a third by getting into some more stuff that fits under the Broken Oars University banner. And that stuff today is going to be, wait for it, drum roll. If I could do a drum roll at this point, I would. Poetry. Now, before you rush to switch off and say, what the hell has this got to do with rowing? I could go into a long peroration about how essentially moving a boat is in itself a form of poetry in motion and we could get into the spiritual and emotional aspects of rowing but I've already done that in the music and rowing Broken Oars University podcast. No, a friend of mine, Stephen Graham, down at Tyne United um, dropped quite casually a reference to Beowulf into one of his recent conversations with the diablerie and elan of a man who knows his Anglo-Saxon diphthongs from his post-Norman monothongs. Monothongs, it sounds like something that you wear at the beach. I may have got that wrong. Diphthong, monothong, sounds about right. I've got degrees and stuff, I should know this stuff. Anyway, I thought um, what I'd like to do is I would like to revisit some of the stuff that I used to teach and lecture and research in, and in doing so to see if I can spark my brain into some form of life. So today we're going to talk about romantic poetry. And I don't mean romantic poetry in the sense of the moon, June, spoon stuff that we all wrote when we were 16 to our first love and the things that we write on flowers to our current love. I'm talking about romanticism, romantic poetry, the romantics, not Steve Strange and we feed, we fade to grey, we feed to grey, we feed on grey. Not Steve Strange, fade to grey, not Duran Duran and her name is Rio and she dances on the sand or any of those things. The actual romantics, the original romantics. So I'm just going to work through some of my notes from some of my research back when I had a brain and uh, we'll see if it adds up to anything approaching the impartation of knowledge to anyone who happens to be listening. We will be back at some point, I'm sure, with things rowing related and things people related. We have guests lined up waiting to come on, but we're just completely snowed under at the moment. So I'm grabbing half an hour to talk about some stuff. So. The subject of romanticism, the romantics, the romantic poets, your your Wordsworths, your Coleridge's, your Byron's, your Keats's, um, 
it's a bit of a contentious arena because it's been a couple of hundred years since the canonically accepted period of the Romantic era um, passed. And those couple of hundred years have pretty much seen a constant output of critical and cultural debate and intervention on the idea of the nature and the legacy of that period, who the Romantics were, what they stood for, what they actually did. Did they actually achieve anything? The simple answer is no, they're poets. Shelley liked to say that poets are the unacknowledged legislators of the world. And the reason that he said that was because no one paid any attention to them. Um, and he desperately wanted attention to be paid to him and to his fellows. The reality is that if all of the poets in the Western Hemisphere go on strike, nobody will notice. If all of the plumbers in the Western Hemisphere go on strike, we'll all know about it within about a day and a half. Poetry is wonderful. It's the sign of a civilization. A civilization is only as big as what it can allow to flourish. But the reality is it doesn't do very much. It's just a nice way of moving words around. And occasionally there is emotional resonance or intellectual recognition that we get from engaging with those words that make us seem, feel seen or validated or heard. But the reality is that since, since Wordsworth in his daffodils and Coleridge in his opium or laudanum passed on, there have been decades of debate about what their nature is and what their legacy is. I can make a convincing argument that our current Love Island fixation on celebrity, influencers, all of those kind of things derive from the romantics putting forth the idea that the art was not the important thing, it was the artist and their feelings that are the important thing. And obviously that is often misquoted because Wordsworth never said that it's all about the emotion. What he actually said was it's about the emotion being recollected in tranquility, which means that as well as emotion, you have to have art and craft. And craft is a bit of a, it's a bit of a pejorative it's a word that has a pejorative overtone now to be, you know, to be into crafts, to be a crafter is um, seen as somehow homely or folksy or homespun or not chic or sophisticated or stylish. But if you actually look before the Romantic period, you go back to the Augustan period, for example, artists didn't consider themselves noble souls who strode through the moorlands and declaimed blank verse. They considered themselves craftsmen. They crafted their work. So, any already, we're getting into it already, the idea that when we're going to talk about these things, we're traveling through a landscape that has defined by the mapping and the topographical inscriptions of previous travelers. And any view of the subject that we have will be somewhat distorted by the perspectives that these mappings engender. The daffodils of Wordsworth, God bless them, have over the succeeding generations since that poem was published, been caught between entrenched critical and cultural viewpoints and trapped in a critical and cultural no-man's land, being used for target practice. I don't want to get into the idea that the Romantics had a manifesto for art either, even though I know that you have prelude to lyrical ballads and biographia, literatia and all of the rest of it, uh, because it's problematic. Firstly, defining Romanticism as a concept, as a movement, is difficult because of the problems I've just identified. The weight of critical opinion entering, uh, weighting anyone entering into this debate suggests that giving a definition, well, they're ten a penny, but a definitive definition, which we can all agree on, is going to be a difficult one to nail down. 
And suggesting that there is a romantic manifesto would mean that we would have to examine whether or not they lived up to their manifesto. And the reality was they were not, we grouped them together, but they weren't a collective. They didn't sit down together and draft a set of policies. And then having done so, they didn't work to a prescribed set of aims and objectives, which is what a manifesto would suggest. So there can't be a manifesto for us to evaluate if a manifesto never actually exists. So I thought um, what I'd do is, going through this will go into three sections. I will firstly outline and evaluate various critical models of the romantics, romanticism, etc., in order to establish a context and a framework for what it is, what it might be, and what we could be talking about. And then having established that working model, the second part, I suppose, will look at the, the major themes and tropes that we can find within this framework, the, the broad confluence of which we can say might be something that pertains to romantic poetry or what we think of as romantic poetry or the romantics. And then we will go on to look at what the legacy of the romantic um, poets and, and writers were, uh, were, was. I can never get that right, but then I'm a dyslexic Geordie, what do you expect? So we're not going to be looking at whether they, f they fulfilled a manifesto. Defining failure is a highly subjective thing, and one person's critical or cultural perspective is another's heretical, critical or cultural anathema. So it's not the final word on romantic studies, because there can never be one. It's just if you're remotely interested or you ever go to the Lake District with your friends or family or your children or they, your children come home needing to write an essay on it, you can probably lift quite a substantial chunk of this because it is postdoctoral level bollocks that I'm talking. Um, but it'll be fun to talk about it anyway. So let's get into it. So part one, what is, what is romanticism? Who were the romantics? What do they stand for? W.H. Auden's once said, W.H. Auden was the poet who had the face of a scrotum and who taught Anglo-Saxon and various other things at Oxford, I believe. I believe Tolkien actually originally taught him Anglo-Saxon um, back in the 1930s. Fantastic poet, um, complete charlatan, as all poets and pretty much everyone in that kind of line of work is. He once said, my seminar on romanticism starts tomorrow. Poor things, they have no idea what they have let themselves in for. Which is probably, if you're still listening, exactly what you feel like right now. So, I've already alluded to the fact that defining Romanticism is a problematic exercise. Since, since the historic moment of the production of the texts that have come to be defined as Romantic, a lot of critical models of the period have been called into existence to attempt to define it and codify it. Um, they all clamour for attention, but the reality is there are advantages and disadvantages to be found in each. So let's work through some of these ideas so we can get an idea of what we talk about when we talk about romantic poetry. Um, so romanticism is often defined not by what it is, but it's defined by critics in terms of its opposition to the period preceding it. So J.R. Watson, you know him, wrote at five, reasonable 2k score, always had trouble tapping down. 
he he wrestled with uh, with this idea he identified the romantic period as being the change from the neoclassical the augustan period that preceded it in the 17th century to the romantic period and he did so in terms of it being simple opposition so in contrast to neoclassicism or augustanism and then you're looking at people like pope and dryden and and that and those kind of writers watson framed romanticism as and i quote the subjective rather than the objective, fragmentary rather than the complete, organic rather than preconceived in form, interested in nature, the self, the wonderful and the supernatural. And we could pretty much leave it there because that does sound like the romantic poets that we know and love or know and indeed loathe. I wandered lonely as a cloud, my heart left up, it's all about the I. The egotistical sublime that they talked about often appear to be a lot of ego and not a huge amount of sublime. But Watson himself admitted his view that it was very simplistic to make the case that Romanticism claimed new stylistic and kinetic territory in terms of the art and craft and practice and subjects of writing. If you historically and socially contextualise the neoclassical poetry of Dryden and Pope and Johnson, we can identify that the poetic energy of the age is channeled. It's channeled and constrained to the, the what was said to be the, the taught couplets. They are verse forms where all is those rules of old discovered, not devised, nature still, but nature methodized. What can be res retrospectively by people like Watson, perhaps just dubbed a narrowness of neoclassical technical vision and theoretical methodology, can be compared with a romantic revival of things like blank verse, the epic, the ode, the use of continental or Italianate forms such as Ottavo Rima or Terza Rima, and newly minted forms such as conversation poetry. Against that, the narrowly, apparently narrowly technical approach of the neoclassical era can be argued or can be seen as a withdrawal or a retreat of artistic ambition which was, again, seems to be supported by the idea that a lot of the verse of the time was pessimistic or satirical in tone, whereas this sheer technical diversity of the succeeding era suggests a new exuberant confidence in the potential range of the poetic form and the need for new forms to express new concerns, a view that was voiced by Wordsworth. And he said, the principal object then proposed in these poems was to choose incidents and situations from common life and to relate or describe them throughout as far as possible in a selection of language really used by men and at the same time to throw over them a certain colouring of imagination whereby ordinary things should be presented to the mind in an unusual aspect. So the language really used by men, situations from common life, what this can be seen as is essentially what every teenager goes through at some point between the ages of about 13 and 24, when they suddenly start rebelling against everything that's gone before, against their parents, against the... They, they've always liked pizza, now they hate pizza. They've always enjoyed going um, swimming with their dad, now they hate going swimming with their dad, and they want to listen to, to goth music in their bedroom while being dressed in black. The easiest way to separate yourself out as an individual, as someone trying to do something or make a name for themselves, is to say that you don't stand for what's gone before. You saw it in 1976 and 77 with the punk movement when Johnny Rotten 
wore a t-shirt saying, I hate Pink Floyd. And the reality was he absolutely, absolutely loved Pink Floyd, but he realized by making that statement, he instantly stood out as being new and fresh and original because he wasn't part of the old order. Wordsworth is doing the same. It's a very teenage, adolescent way of defining yourself. As inference is that neoclassicism is a narrow form. That's evident. But the reality is that neoclassicism wasn't a narrow form. Neoclassical poetry, Augustan poetry, was a public form. So it dealt in public events, public situations, public ideas, and in doing so, it used the form appropriate to the content that it was conveying. Now, we've all done this. We've all been to a wedding where somebody who knows what the rules are regarding a best man speech delivers a corker, and someone who gets up and just riffs off the top of his head might occasionally produce a corker, but more often than not, doesn't manage it. It's the same at a funeral where we have a eulogy. It's this, we have these social forms that we use to put our content into so that we can then communicate something to a wider audience. The rules of a best man speech, introduction, name, who you are, mother of the bride, father of the bride, thanks for coming, dearly departed. There is a, there is a definite form. And neoclassical poetry used very, very definite forms. The technical shift that Wordsworth is claiming, the language of the common man, situations from common life, is echoed by a theoretical shift, a, th a theoretical a change in the way that, that poetry was understood to be important. In Dryden and Pope's age, it was understood to be a public form commenta commentating upon aspects of public life. Wordsworth and co made it a personal form and it was about the inner life. It was it was about the interior rather than the exterior. This is this is massive for the way that we went on to see art in the nineteenth, twentieth, and twenty-first centuries, and indeed culture and cultural narratives. So Alexander Pope, who was an Augustan or neoclassical poet, gave an account of what he felt was a subtle and elusive relationship between art and nature in his essay on criticism, 1711, if anyone is interested in looking up the date. A close reading of that will give you the theoretical framework of the neoclassical poetic praxis. So, an essay on criticism suggests that nature simultaneously denotes the following. The object of the external world, imitated by art, an order embodying universal truth to which art aspires, and a set of permanent principles to which art tries to conform. And he said, first, follow nature and your judgment frame by her just standard, which is still the same. An erring nature, still divinely bright, one clear, unchanged and universal light. Life force and beauty must all impart at once the source and end and test of art. Now there's a complex series of cultural assumptions which form the framework of this ideology and it rests upon what you might call a three-way or a tripartite if we're going to get into literary terminology reading of the line where nature is at once the source and test the source and end and test of art this line outlines the set of historically established imperatives to which art should try and conform so there is a nominal meta-order, an overarching narrative which em embodies the universal truth to which art should aspire. That is, that is reality, and the objects of the external world as represented by art. As such, it's a poetic formula where at one remove the poet imitates nature, the source of art, 
and at the same time imposes order on nature, later summed up in the same work as nature methodized. So it's, it's an Arist Aristotelian distinction between the universality of poetry and the particularity of history, which remains central to the neoclassical poetics of the time, a distinction demonstrated by Dr. Johnson's combinations of these attitudes into his statement that great thoughts, great thoughts are always general. That was indicative of his belief in the grandeur of generality. So the neoclassics were imitating nature in the same way that the, um, or responding to nature in the same way that the romantics were, and they were using the poetic form to impose order and harmony on it because they came from a classical tradition of harmony and balance where the form and the content work coterminously, which means they work together, um, to produce the desired effect, the desired whole, the desired result. By contrast, being adolescent, the early Romantic poets reacted strongly against this, this established poetic model. Whereas Pope just prescribed technical facility and organisation as benchmarks by which a poet should be measured, the Romantic articulation that the poet should be cut from the cloth of a visionary found an early voice in William Blake, especially in his early marginalia. This contains a tacit attack upon the derivation of rules from general nature, which is idiomatic of the neoclassical school. Blake maintained that imagination was the only recognisable source of truth, that all the objects of nature are in the poet's domain, and that an unremitting focus upon nature led to a narrowness of vision within the neoclassical poetic model. He said, every eye sees differently. As the eye, such the object. What is general nature? Is there such a thing? What is general knowledge? Is there such a thing? All knowledge is particular. The problem with seeing that as, as a turning point or a, or a, a, a volta in, in poetic terms where the, the new order sets itself in opposition to the last is that even though he's cast as a recognizably romantic figure, um, Blake, Blake's perspective was not shared by someone like Wordsworth. He didn't necessarily share the visionary particularity articulated by Blake. And the former's theory of poetry developed in a way that owed much to the preceding neoclassic aesthetic methodology. The object of Wordsworth's poetry was articulated as being truth, not individual and local, but general and operative. Poetry is defined as being the image of man in nature, which echoes the methodology of Pope in both its coterminous reading of nature and the poetic model. So it's very, very hard to suggest that what defines Romanticism is its opposition to its neoclassical Augustan predecessor. The reality is that they, they share very, very similar elements and they share very, very similar views upon how poetry is organised. The main shift, I would argue, would be that the neoclassical or, or the Augustan poets, they were use, poetry was a public form. It commented upon, upon external things. The main shift is that the Romantics, even though they were commenting on external things in Tintern Abbey or the, the, the hills of the Lake District or the Daffodils, they were actually more concerned with the interior landscape. So the exterior landscape was mirroring, uh, was mirroring an interior emotional landscape. To be fair to Blake, and not to cast him adrift um, it, with the other poets of, of, of the 
the Romantic period, he does emphasise the subjectivity of the poet. The notion of truth enshrined by Wordsworth is to be carried alive into the heart by feeling. And whereas someone like Alexander Pope's poetic representative of the neoclassical period adheres to a classical model, Wordsworth was again talking about the language of men within his poetry. There is a very, very specific symbolic poetic language in English literature, which it's not really taught in schools. It's not really taught in universities, but it goes back, it, it goes back to before the Norman conquest into the Anglo-Saxon period. And there are definite symbols. The, the swans of the, of the Thames, for example, are symbols of purity for Spencer, despite the amount that they crap everywhere. Um, things like death and battle, which everyone thinks Anglo-Saxon poetry is riddled with deaths and battle. You never really see the corpses. What you do, what you get is you get a sense of the aftermath of the battle by the allusion to the flocks of ravens coming down to feast, for example, in the Battle of Maldon. So there were certain poetic conventions that were understood that we maybe don't um, know quite as well nowadays. So and the language of men is is that idea. He he had the idea Wordsworth that somehow poetry had become hyper stylized and it had become based upon classical illusion and classical references and classical understandings. And he wanted to start talking in the language of men. But he qualifies this apparently bold statement by determining to remove what would otherwise be painful or disgusting in the passion. So there's a, that's a statement that's classicist in its decorous sensibility, or decorous. I'm a Geordie, I can't pronounce this stuff. So um, it's hard to just go, well, the Romantics were this group of poets, and we know that because they were completely different to the poets that went before them, because that's not, that's not true. The evidence suggests that there is less a bloody revolution amid the syntactic units as the utilisation and progression of pre-existing intellectual resources within a new cultural and historical context. This is certainly a view which has gained credence among critics such as Marshall Brown, A.C. Goodson and Marilyn Butler. As Butler states, the received view is that at some time at the end of the 18th century, a romantic revolution occurred which worked a permanent change in literature and in the other arts and scored a decisive victory over the classicism which was there before. In reality, there would seem to have been no one battle and no complete history. The idea that there's a bloodline rather than a bloodletting or a bloody battle uh, can be seen in someone like A.C. Goodson's essay, Romantic Theory and the Critique of Language, which proposes the idea that there is a common linguistic thread running from the Enlightenment to modern day deconstruction via the Romantic era. And I've just posited the, the fact that there is an, there's an idea of English literature that goes back to the Anglo-Saxon period. I know that scholars like Robert Carlyle and Tolkien complained that England had been cut off from her true cultural history by the Norman invasion, but the reality is the Norman invasion, like the Roman invasion or the Danish invasion or the the, the highland clearances or however you want to frame it was just another thing that happened in the history of our small island and in that context there is no one true English literature what you have is you have succeeding influxes of styles that take over and, and cross-pollinate and form interesting it, the idea that Arthur is the king of Britain is from the Norman romance um, 
genre from the Norman Romance tradition. It goes back to Cretan de Troy. It goes it goes across to France, but we've made it our own, and we've made it our own. You know, the Mort to Arthur by Thomas Mallory, a man who wrote the Mort to Arthur, the one of the founding myths of Britain of England. He wrote it while he was in prison on charges relating to sheep stealing, rape, and murder, and yet it's one of our founding myths. It's a founding myth of an England before the Norman Conquest, but it's written using the the, the traditional forms of um, courtly romance that came across with the Normans. Oh, the irony. Anyway, to get back to Goodson, the idea of a linguistic thread running from the Enlightenment, which is the 16th and 17th century, through to, I guess we call, we're deconstructed now, so modern-day deconstruction, via the Romantics. And he says... Wordsworth's critique of language, as I propose to call this long conversation about words, is an engine of enlightenment thinking, an essential means of social and epistemological observation that reaches from Bacon and Locke through to logical positivism and the language revolution of literary modernism. His idea is that the questioning of the nature of rational thought first undertaken by the enlightenment thinkers in the 17th and 18th century is echoed by the work of the romantic poets and writers. He then goes on to draw a parallel between the work of the modernist movement of the early 20th century and Romanticism, which places Romanticism as a precursor to modernism rather than a reaction to neoclassical enlightenment. So there's a there's a acknowledged ambiguity in trying to define the era through opposition, and it's continued when we try and consider it in terms of its canon, its canonicity. What would a romantic canon look like? And by canon, I mean a body of work rather than something that can hurl 18 pounds of iron 400 feet through 16 inches of oak. I mean, what would a romantic canon look like in that regard? Like something with flowers on it? Um, and you get people saying things like this. We may begin with the obvious thought, though not irrelevant observation, that English poetry of the Romantic period is dominated by six great poets. A man called Watson wrote that, and it's obvious, isn't it? It's obvious that it's the Romantics are all about six great poets. And it relies on the idea that Wordsworth, Coleridge, Keats, Byron, Shelley and Blake um, firstly that they were great poets, secondly that they produced their work at broadly the same time, um, are we up to thirdly yet? Thirdly, that they were all working with identical themes as if they had a romantic playbook that they were developing from it and so on and so forth. Um, and it's pretty reductive. There have been efforts by people like Stuart Curran in the essay uh, Romantic Poetry, The Eye Altered, to include the female writers who were writing at the time. Um, but it's the sort of it's the sort of statement that relies upon the assumptions of opposition that then that the neoclassical romantic op oppositional dichotomy relied upon. It's contextualizing the infinite complexity of any given period as being a tacit collective. And to be fair to Watson, you should never give a man a kicking without you know actually acknowledging that sometimes he doesn't necessarily deserve it. He actually admits that having said that, although each was deeply conscious of the work of the others and sometimes influenced by them, in no sense do they ever form a school. So there are obvious differences between neoclassicism and the Romantic um, period. But 
it's not as simple as a straightforward break with tradition. It's not as simple as it's completely different. If we look at something like um, Lyrical Ballads, which was published in 1798, which was a um, joint effort between Coleridge and Wordsworth, it ends with the latter's lines composed a few miles above Tintin Abbey. Geographically removed from the London centrism of the neoclassicists. So the neoclassical schools were was broadly based around the capital. Um, there was a geographical remove in the fact that Wordsworth was was based in the Lake District. And in this particular instance, he's talking about Tintin Abbey's location on the River Wye. And what you get if you read the poem is it has a, a regenerative theme. It's about secular redemption. It's a, an acknowledgement of poetic subjectivity and natural symbolism and those place it at a certain remove from the poetic concerns and forms of the neoclassicists it's a poetry of exploration and experiment and even in the premeditation of its retrospection a conceit which you know could be held to devalue its veracity if we allow for that, it still yields interesting reading, even at the remove of a couple of hundred years. These forms of beauty have not been to me, as is a landscape to a blind mind's eye, but oft in lonely rooms in mid the din of towns and cities. I have owed to them, in hours of weariness and sensation sweet, felt in the blood and along the heart. Wordsworth's mapping of the woods and cliffs and water is given symmetry and kinship with the human body by his suggestion that they live in the blood and in the heart. The proposition that the heart has its own mysterious coastline intimates that the inner personal world of bodily experience and subjective recollection, which is what is happening, matches the outer world in its complexity and depth. Now, if we take that idea alongside um, William Hazlitt, Bow terrible 2k score his statement with what eyes those poets see nature the confluence of eyes and nature in both suggests that there's a commentary going on here about the nature of perception rather than the perception of nature now that's an important point i think but the collectivizing assumption of a lot of critical and cultural commentators of this idea of a canon and a group of men and a body of work is is pretty much being debunked there by that reading of Tintin Abbey. It gives us one of the central paradoxes of romantic poetry, the which is the greater the scope of the poetry, the more distant the language from customary or everyday usage becomes. Um, the language of the common man talking about everyday situations as as they're reaching as they're feeling their way into talking about the nature of perception rather than simply just perceiving nature the gap grows bigger and byron god bless him identified what can be seen as a, a slippage from what might be called linguistic experiment to what he suggested as solipsistic navel gazing in wordsworth and coleridge he ruthlessly satirised their excesses in Don Juan, which was published in 1818. And Wordsworth, in a rather long excursion, I think the quarto holds 500 pages, has given a sample from the vasty version of his new system to perplex the sages. Tis poetry, at least by his assertion, and may appear so when the dog star rages, and he who would understand it would be able to add a story 
to the Tower of Babel. And you thought that poetry was all about love and moon and June and spoon and June. Although why the novel comes into poetry, I've got no idea. Um, it's, a, it's a very pointed attack upon Wordsworth's Wordsworth's movement from wanting to talk directly in the language of common men to, to requiring hundreds and hundreds of pages to get his point across. But it's an instructive satire in context. The label of romanticism that we have is derived by a process of critical mapping and historical distance that's occurred since the time of the Romantic poets. If, it, if we were to present our findings to any one of the authors, um, presuming that we could get Coleridge and Byron out of their drunk or laudanum-induced state, the idea that they were a group or a label or a, they were the, the romantics would, would probably cause quizzically raised eyebrows. What we grouped together as a movement was, at the time, individuals writing without slavish reference to each other and without the contextualised aims that that collectivization would suggest that Byron, traditionally held as part of the Romantic canon, was prepared to satirise his apparently canonical peers, suggests that he didn't necessarily march under a banner emblazoned with the slogan Romanticism. If you were to put him in, in the Romantic category, you'd probably call him a Romantic of the second generation, and he was always dubious about what the first generation had actually achieved, as the above quotation has noted. And even though he delivered his satire with a flippant spin about his sense of life's inherent fraily, it undercut, but it did not necessarily dull the edge of his razor. He wasn't above making very, very serious points about the nature of art and society and poetry and all of those kind of things, and then pathetically, that's bathetically, undercutting them. So, I would to heaven that I was so much clay as I am blood, bone, marrow, passion, feeling, because at least the past were passed away, and for the future, but I write this reeling, having got exceedingly drunk today, so that I seem to stand upon the ceiling. I say the future is a serious matter, and so, for God's sake, hock and soda water. In contrast to Wordsworth's musing upon the nature of perception, Byron's poetic questioning of human life tends to lean towards religiosity, and the rhetorical tone of Don Juan is it's a comic scepticism that's shot through by threads of sober, doubting re reflection. That's the nature of bathos, something very, very serious that's then undercut by something very, very flippant. His tone and his form are sufficiently distant from Wordsworth, Keats, Shelley, Coleridge, Blake to cut the idea that there's a rope corralling them together and expose the structural soundness of a definition of romanticism based upon canonization as nothing more than a convenient but inherently unstable label. It's a circular argument. What is assumed to be romantic is found in the canonically anointed poets, who in turn must be romantic because romantic themes are found in their work, and so on, back to the fourth. So, defining romanticism is problematic, but I, get, I guess by now we have a sense of the period that we're talking about, the, the poets that we're talking about, the themes and ideas that we are talking that we're, we're talking about it's um the problem with defining it isn't in establishing an inherent grasp of what's implied or in identifying a general cultural historical or social construct it's the problem lies in defining and grasping these terms clearly without the distortions engendered by decades of critical and cultural interventions much of which and i hate to say it 
can be accused of forgetting the subject in its, their eagerness to stake a critical claim, establish a position or score an ideological point. So in the middle of all of this, um, and around about the romantic period, a critic called A.O. Lovejoy, uh, he went on to become an antiques dealer played by Ian McShane. Um, in an essay called the Dis On the Discrimination of Romanticism, suggest that the word romantic should no longer be used because it has come to mean so many things that by itself it means nothing. It has ceased to form the function of a verbal sign. It's very, it's modernist. We're, get, we're going to end up with Lacan and Derrida and, Bo and Baudelaire and all of those problematic people. But you can kind of see what he means. Um, just in this first section alone, we've seen romanticism defined by the era succeeding it, the era preceding it, in reaction to both as a continuation of the latter, as the critical foregrounding of the former, and so on and so forth. However, from all of those models, we've yet to extrapolate a model of romanticism that defines the term within its own context for critical appraisal. Lovejoy argued for a pluralistic use of the term romanticism and for closer reading of discernible dominant ideas within that context. He identified a personal preference for the primitive over the sophisticated, the idea that romantic art is infinite compared with the narrow technicality of the neoclassical or Augustan period, and the preference for nature over art as being, in his view, though strange. Strains. His contextualization, though, which inherently predicated its definitions of romanticism by what could be called systematic differentiation, generated a reaction. René Wellick provided a common-sense view that aligned itself in opposition to Lovejoy's view in his essay, The Concept of Romanticism in Literary History. He said, sorry, Wellick said, We find throughout Europe the same conceptions of poetry and of the workings and nature of the poetic imagination, the same conception of nature and its relation to man, and basically the same poetic style, with the use of imagery, symbolism and myth which is clearly distinct from that of 18th century neoclassicism. So what you're getting there are period terms that are being defined as names for systems of norms, a clarification and defensive worth which stands in opposition to someone like Lovejoy's position, who felt that signification had become woolly and indistinct because of disparate and um, inaccurate critical usage. In Wellick's essay, though, Romanticism is again defined in opposition to neoclassicism whilst it simultaneously acknowledges drawing its intellectual resource from the past, he argues that the Romantics were going back to the, the poetic and artistic themes of the Renaissance period and the Middle Ages for form and content. And in a sense, there's something to support that. But it's a view of Romanticism that remains pervasive, but we've already established as being flawed. There was no massive right-turn break with what had gone before. There was a bloodline continuation, much more than a bloodletting. Um, I guess rather than talking about romantic poetry, what this chat indicates is that there's a culture of reaction, of opposition and entrenchment that lies at the heart of critical debate. While this could be, if we were in an academic context, um, justified as furthering the, the debate and by proxy extending our understanding and resource of reading on a given subject, that would be great. But it can also come across very often as the singularly human desire to have the last word at whatever cost, the cost having already been identified as the loss of the subject in the haze of the debate. Jer Jerome McGann, uh, Jerome J. McGann of the Liverpoolian McGann brothers who um, bestrode stage and screen like Colossi, 
said the problem of workably defining the romantics and romanticism was this. The present scholarly situation often appears ignorant or forgetful of its subject, so intent upon its own productive process that it seems incapable of, uh, sorry, it seems capable of any sort of nonsense. Criticism has of late increasingly allowed its rigour and clarity, its scholarly obligations to lapse into disuse. Informing his argument, McGann is illustrating the positions mapped out by Lovejoy and Wellick as, as examples of critical infighting, and he's coming down more in favour of Lovejoy, though, in terms of a, a working critical praxis for talking about the Romantic period. Um, that it's the idea that Lovejoy's system of differentiation allows a precision of use lacking in what he sees as a populist generalisation of terms and ideology which underlies the Wellick essay. I feel that both positions indicate an informed if opposed approach by Lovejoy and Wellick, with Wellick generating a measured response to Lovejoy's view while not agreeing with it. But McGann's point is permanent. In the battle to define the subject, the subject itself can often receive short shrift. So anything that I say on this little podcast has to be on the tacit understanding that it exists purely while we're chatting or while we're listening for the purposes of talking about it, after which it collapses back into a seething ocean of critical discourse and linguistic sign slippage. Um, so to go on to talk about the poets, as we're now going to do, here's what we're going to talk about when we talk about the romantics, r romantic poets and romantic poetry. We're going to historically contextualise it. We're going to say it's a, it's a period that begins with the early poetry of Wordsworth and Coleridge and ends with the death of Sir Walter Scott. Um, now that might seem narrow, you know, you could argue that the pre-Raphaelites were a form of romantic. You could argue that the, the primitivists and the neo-primitivists were a form of romantic. But that's the critical and cultural mapping area that we're going to look at. Okay. Um, so within the context of that, that places romanticism between somewhere around about 1785 and 1832. I think that would mean we can sidestep the distortions of context that many critical models are predicated on. And while the model of romanticism is equally predicated upon the arbitrary selection of a specific historical context, it has the benefit of not sitting in judgment upon the text pronounced within that period. So simply put, by ro locating romanticism, romantic poets, romantic poetry in a historical context without any prescriptive systems of weights and measures means that any text located within that period carries the same weight as any other. That means we can talk about them without risking inconsistency during to owing to arbitrary valuating texts which are written at the same time or which don't necessarily subscribe to a given critical norm. Um, so roughly the writings of the late 18th and 19th centuries sharing a general historical situation but not necessarily held together by any essential or prescriptive characteristics. So that definition allows consistency of usage, a given period and an idea of maybe constitutional veracity. The idea that the Romantic Age is so-called not because all of its worms, words, its worms. The Romantic Age is not so-called because all of its works are romantic, but because the ideologies of Romanticism exerted a dominant influence at the time. So, having talked about that, next Wednesday I will start talking about the poetry and the poets and the time and the period and all of that kind of stuff. And at some point 
we will reconvene and talk about rowing again too. So until then, God bless and look after yourselves. And if you should actually decide to cite this or to use it in any way, shape or form and you are a university student or a school student, there is a copy of it in the library at the University of Manchester. Please cite it. Do not get caught out. Do not get sent down for plagiarism. Do not get rusticated. I've no idea what rustication is, but I hear it's very unpleasant.